0: Hey everyone, welcome to A Questioning Faith. This is a podcast crafted for us to be able to ask hard questions about our faith, about scripture, about art, about all sorts of things that impact our lives. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and uh, be sure to check out John Fuller's book, Enter Into My Rest. Check it out at www.enterintomyrest.com.
1: Welcome, everybody, to episode 10 of A Questioning Faith, and I just saw John say, wow, and that's what I thought, too, when I I wrote episode 10 on the Zoom description as we record this meeting on Zoom. Today, a fun day, we're going to be going behind the world of the Bible to explore aspects that people have rarely talked about in in church context. This is the kind of thing that you would experience at seminary Uh, and then be told, be very careful how you tell people about this because you might damage their faith in the Bible. So we'll begin with, this is life-giving, exciting, fun. Uh, (laughs) If you're a nerd like me and uh, it helps me to see powerfully how God was at work using, inspiring, encouraging the biblical writers and editors. And, but at the same time, we can also see that a surface level reading in which we say, oh, the Bible is literally literally true and inerrant is nonsense. That's just trying to do something that the biblical authors were never trying to do to give us An inerrant rule book. What they're trying to do is open our hearts up to the way God moves in powerful and mysterious ways in the world, and they use their entire art and craft, their literary genius that God gave them to shape a library that has been transforming people's lives, in which we can say this book truly is living scripture because it never gets old, And to each new generation that reads it, it reveals new and more important and powerful aspects of what it means to be human in the nature of God. So I'm going to take a deep breath now and begin with some questions for a questioning faith. What were the authors, what on earth were the authors trying to do? And what are they still doing to us? How do they impact our lives by what they did? And I want to begin with genealogies, because there is so much misinformation or misunderstanding on the use of genealogies in the Bible. And it has led to a 6,000-year earth fallacy. Uh, It has led to terrible interpretations. And when we start to understand what the genealogies were used for and what they do, it opens up incredible new perspectives, new vistas into the reality of God. So that's my introduction. John, you and I have spoken about the literary aspects and the, the, the desires of the original authors for well over a decade. Is there anything you'd like to add to that introduction before we begin? let's just dive right in it was a beautiful introduction all right so i'm using the scholarship of robert alter who is one of the greatest hebrew scholars in the world still living he's in his 80s and has spent his entire life at berkeley california university of california berkeley teaching and studying the hebrew language and He writes, nothing reveals the difference of the biblical conception of literature from our current Western ones more strikingly than the biblical use of genealogies as an intrinsic element of literary structure. The genealogy lists or begats in Genesis are carefully placed compositional units that mark off one large narrative segment from another hear the story of creation and the antediluvian founding figures from the deluge story. Uh, So antediluvian is a fancy word for saying prior to the flood. So there is is a, a genealogy at the end of the flood and that marks off a major shift in the biblical story. So one of the aspects, one of the uses, every time you see a genealogy, the authors are giving us a clue that the chapter has ended. There were no chapters. There were no no chapters and verses until the invention of the printing press. When the, the printers needed a way to keep track of what page they were printing, one brilliant printer came up with the idea of making chapters and verses and he would write them into his notes in his Bible on the back of a horse as he would ride from his house to work every morning and on the way home. So to think that the chapter and verse has powerful meaning for us today, nope, (laughs) they are arbitrary. And you will see how arbitrary as you study the Bible and see that, man, they just get plopped right in the middle of stories. And they can really disrupt the flow of the story. You're talking about genealogy, right? No, I'm just talking about chapter verse right now. Okay. So, So so going back to genealogy, Liz, if we truly want to understand where the original authors wanted to mark the end of a chapter, we look for genealogies.
2: So is that when they were saying it's so-and-so son of this and the house of this and the son and all the names that you can't ever pronounce, but you do your gosh darn hardest to pronounce them correctly?
1: Yes. Yes. Okay.
2: That's what, yeah. So that's how they used to end it. And then they came up with chapters and verses.
1: Right. Chapters and okay. verses were in the 1600s.
3: Right. Gotcha. And just um, for, just for a little bit of context, Christian verse and chapter Uh, designations differ in numerous places from the Hebrew. So um, it can create problems of unbelievable proportions. And in the Septuagint, you've got entire chapters that don't exist in the Hebrew at all. So we have that to contend with on top of it. John, would you describe the Septuagint? The Septuagint would... Qualify as what is called a Targum or translation of the Hebrew. The Targumim or Targums, according to, let's say, the most um, conservative interpreters, are not even considered truth because they are not in Hebrew. But because so many people don't or did not in the centuries around Jesus um, understand Hebrew, um, they were essentially considered the same as the Vulgate was um, in the translations then from the Latin into vernacular languages. They were not considered valid, and people were killed because they actually translated the Latin. Um, but the same was the, true, the truth with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as the Aramaic. Now, at the Dead Sea Scrolls, just for background, there is a Hebrew version of the Septuagint text of probably the Pentateuch. So, we know it did exist as well in a Hebrew version at some point.
1: And interestingly, what John is saying is Hebrew was almost a dead language at the time of Jesus. People rarely spoke Hebrew. They spoke Greek and Latin, and it was really, uh, Hebrew didn't, biblical Hebrew is what brought back the Hebrew, the modern Hebrew spoken language. Mm -hmm. And the Septuagint then was, because so few people actually read or spoke Hebrew, they were worried that people would not have access to the Bible anymore, so they translate, it's the first translation of the Hebrew and it was translated into Greek. Some some um,
3: other interesting points for Christian listeners is that the Bible of the disciples uh, and Paul was the Septuagint. 90% of all distinguishing quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament are from the Septuagint. Another 9% or so are from the Aramaic. Only 1% of the distinguishing quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament are from or is from Hebrew. Very, uh, It was not the language of the
1: church. So we're going to talk about another text now, the Masoretic text. We've we've touched on this before, and I'll have John remind everybody the Masoretic text when we get here. But Liz and Braden, I'm looking to see what kind of reactions you have. I'm going to give an example of a genealogy. And in the Bible, the genealogies are used far more frequently than many people would expect. We all remember the really long ones with all of those names that you just hope you don't have to read if you're the lectionary reader yeah but there are maybe hundreds of genealogies in the bible and once you recognize that these are the end of a chapter oh then then it really helps understand the meaning of the story it shapes the story for us so and here's one that is pregnant with meaning. And I'm just going to read it and see what you guys think. Okay. So the Danites, this is from the book of Judges, chapter 18. It's the last few verses of chapter 18. And it's the story of the chapter 18 is the story of the Danites or the children of the man named Dan, who was the son of Jacob one of the 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes. And in the book of Judges, the the 12 tribes are given land. So this is the story of the 12, of the Danites getting their land. The Danites having taken what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting. And they put them to the sword and they burned down their city. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with Aram. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob, Beth Rehob. They rebuilt the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, who had, Israel meaning Jacob. Jacob had been renamed Israel. But the name of the city was formerly Laish. Then the Danites set up idols for themselves. Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the time the land went into captivity. So they maintained as their own Micah's idol that they had ma- that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So there is a very short genealogy. Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses. But it's a genealogy nonetheless, and it marks the end of the story. And then if you were to continue reading chapter 19, you, you would see uh it, it begins the constant refrain and judges at the time there was no king in the land and the people did what they wanted to and so we so the danites they go into an unsuspecting city murder everybody and take the land is that what moses would have done uh so if we read this as a validation that we get to go into any land and steal it we could go and take anything we want to because God said that God's going to give it to us. We totally missed the point of what is going on in this story. Mm-hmm. And what, Robert, go ahead, John. Or somebody going to ask something?
2: I said, mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I agree.
1: Okay, so here's what Robert Alter said. At the very end of the story, we are given the name and genealogy of the Levite, the priest. The Masoretic text inserts a superscript nun, in Moshe or Moses, turning it into Manasha or Manasseh. But this can't be right because Gershom was the son of Moses and Manasseh is not a priestly tribe. The author Rashi or historian Rashi aptly explains this oddity. Out of respect for Moses, his name was changed in order to um, uh, free him from this genealogy because the genealogy marks a steep decline. Moses' own grandson, is a violent, horrible, sacrificing mercenary officiating in a cult that is at the very least semi-pagan. Placing the Levites just two generations after Moses would also mean that the whole story is supposed to take place very early at the beginning of the 12th century BCE, a temporal location that has the inconvenient consequence of putting the Danite migration before the time of Samson, a Danite living in the South near the Philistines. So what, what they're saying here is that the at some point, an editor of the Masoretic text could not stand the idea that just two generations after Moses, Moses's grandson, is this vile, murderous, idol-worshiping guy. And also... If, if it this truly was uh, uh, meant to be accurate historically we get an indication that is totally out of time chronologically the story wasn't intended to be a chronological story the author is telling us that it didn't take very long for the followers of Moses to totally lose their minds and walk away from God. Uh, so if I ask uh, Braden what uh, what thoughts do you have about that what those what that genealogy tells us?
0: what's the impact on you? Uh, um, it's interesting to me to see all of the promise that Moses was told about Moses seemed to have been a very good listener still argued with God obviously saying well I can't I I can't talk very well and still listened well enough to the call to the call of doing what was right for people to go and talk to Pharaoh and say hey this isn't all right let them go. If if you don't, there's gonna be some stuff. <laughs> like right. that was a that was a prophetic voice. Um and so to see that just a few generations after hearing that voice and being able to listen to that voice so clearly, that just a few generations later, human arrogance, greed, all the all the things that we beat ourselves up about. Just a few generations later, they came back into play and all of a sudden we forget and we're, we're building our own idols in this new city. We've gone into this new place and we've killed everybody that lived there because, gosh, we deserve it. God gave it to us. And now we're going to build idols and we're going to build our temples and we, we we really think that we're doing it. Because we're okay. talking to God because God gave us this stuff. But I think there was a lot of, well, clearly they, they forgot. They were built like the scriptures tell us that what they did generations after the fact was they built idols. They forgot that it was God that brought them there in the first place.
2: Which we still do today. We worship
1: right. idols. Right, right. So, Liz, how do you see that? How do you see that story still playing out today?
2: I see that, and I'm guilty too. And I think a lot of us are guilty. So, our listeners, you're not alone. Like, you're not you're not a bad person. It's not bad or good. It's the world that we have been created and molded by, as opposed to the way God is calling and molding and creating us. Um, we white knuckle it, and we want control. And we wanna worship what we wanna worship. And we wanna call other people out because we think that they're not acting how they're supposed to be called out. And I've learned that guess what? That's not our job. <laughs> Guys, it's not our job. God's Let God handle those people. We need to look inward. And if we can love ourselves and let go, Uh, the bitter and the hatred and the interpretations that the Bible says we have to act like this from so long ago. And we don't like, no, the the secret to life is to love people, Mm. just love. And I think that we keep missing the point. And I think that big, big, big platforms are huge areas of misinformation because we haven't taken the time to maybe mill it over and research again and and do what what the four of us are doing right now and really get back to the original intent of what it meant after years and decades and centuries of interpretation after interpretation. And
0: and maybe for once, it's good for us to realize that we're not, we really aren't better than the folks who lived the generations and generations and generations before us, Mm -hmm. like, we're still all just trying to figure it out, too.
3: Yeah.
0: And I heard I heard a song this morning that uh that really kind of the lyric pinned it. I think my the, the lyric is essentially I think my opinions are the best ones. But if I find a better one, I'm gonna take that one. Like I'm willing to examine my own opinions and my own traditions and my own beliefs and my own everything that's 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 the questioning faith i'm willing to examine it i'm not saying that it's not real and it's not true and that it's not there and in more ways than we could ever possibly grasp it's there it's real
1: so what i love about what both of you have said in, in different ways is this is we can see what it means to be human and what it means to be human hasn't changed right we're taller we we have better nutrition so we we are a lot taller and we live a lot longer than than perhaps people used to but who we are and how we think hasn't changed and there's two examples the the example of the story and the example of a later editor who didn't like the story so he tried to help God out tried to fix the story so Moses matched You know, so the story matched closer to what he would think that the story should have said. Uh, You know, I I don't want Moses' grandson to be this murderer, and so I'm going to change Moses' name. So Moses, uh, Moses won't be attached to this murderer.
0: It's the same. would, Would we have thought of Moses as such a like? Truly and honestly, if we take a second to think about this, would through the ages? All the way back to the Hebrew people who are walking around in the desert. If everybody knew that Moses' grandson was a murderer, would we have given Moses the time of day? Or would we have judged Moses off of his grandson?
2: We judge off of something your family's done. It just It's like a lineage. It's that, it, the negativity follows your family. How is that there? How does that ruin generations and potentially hold them back? From something better.
1: There's there's even uh, there's even a, a more powerful aspect to that. What you said, Liz, is biblical. The sins of the fathers go on for generations, but at the same time, God takes this mess, and out of even this mess, can mold something beautiful. So, it is exactly the same with our lives, which is what you said to our listeners a few moments ago, and what John and I talk about all the time, and what John posted about on Facebook this past week. Yeah. Jesus loved even me, <laughs> right? John, I saw you wanted to say something, and you've got a Bible there, so go ahead. What was the passage you were quoting from about the Danites? Uh, Judges 18, verse 27, to the end of 18.
3: Okay. Okay. I want to look it up in the Hebrew Bible, if you all will give me just a moment here, because there is a kind of an interesting thing that has to do with when that editorial might have been made. So, I just want to look up um, some
1: spelling here. So, while you're doing that... um... Talk a little bit more about the genealogy as uh, as a marker. And there's a different way to to see how the genealogies were used as markers. The seven generations, let's see, formulaic numbers are well as well are characteristically used by biblical writers to give order and coherence to the narrated world. The seven generations from Adam to Noah of chapter four are displaced by a different formulaic number 10. Some critics have argued that two lists reflect competing versions that deploy the same group of fathers and sons in different patterns. Some of the names are identical in both lists. These are, um, two very similar genealogies that are being that are being compared in Genesis. Why why are these genealogies that list some of the same people so different? Well, because they were trying to, the authors are trying to do different things. From Adam to Noah, uh, chapter 4, um, they were using the formula of 7, or completion. Now, in the number of 10, uh, now, after the flood, there's another genealogy in which there's a formulaic number 10. Some critics have argued that the two lists reflect competing versions that deploy the same group of fathers, the sons, and different patterns. Some of the names are identical in both lists, like Cain, or they may well be variants of each other. But the lists incorporate both of the formulaic numbers. Uh, Lamech, the last of the antediluvians before Noah, lived 777 years. Noah, like his predecessors, becomes the father at, becomes a father at the age of 500, halfway through around millennium, which is the 10 of 10 generations with two decimal places added. A millennium is the age of most free people who live pre-flood, comes close to but they never attain it. Surely after this is truly part of the intention in using the genealogy is to give the history the look of an authentic archaic documentation. If, as many assume priestly circles in the second temple period were ultimately responsible for the list here, they did not hesitate to include the fabulous ages of the Antediluvians, which must have had their origin in the way distant back Semitic antiquity, uh, as old Mesopotamian parallels suggest. So, Part of what we're seeing here too is editing. Prior The story prior to the flood, seven was a number of completion. Post-flood, we're seeing that the 10 becomes very important for that particular author, and 10 is a number of completion. So does that ultimately change the way we read the Bible? Well, I think in, if we think that those lives actually were literal numbers, yes. We have to see that they had meaning far beyond the literal numbers. And we'll come back to that because John has lots to share with us Uh, about what those numbers mean, but John, did you find the passage? I did find, and one of the interesting things that came up to my mind when you were
3: talking about the redaction of the uh, judge's text, because the scribe inserted a little N in there, but the name that he transformed Moses into, which is Moshe in uh, Hebrew, is Manasseh, and Menashe is the son of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was um, a candidate for potential messiahhood. This is this was taken very seriously. But Menashe on the other hand would be the um, analog of antichrist. And because of sure. Menashe, the temple was destroyed and they were all sent to Babylon and blah, blah, blah. So what our redactor has actually done is compare that generation that begat the Danites to Manasseh, And there is essentially a functional equivalent. So we're looking at probably, oh, I would guess maybe um, Second Temple uh, um, post-exile redaction there, just as a kind of a context to how the text would have been shaped and then how it would have been
1: reinterpreted. So, and then to call the so we with what we were exploring here today, we we can we move from a literal interpretation that would say it's okay to go kill people because God said, to people that behave that way are like antichrists.
3: That is functionally what we are supposed to understand, the generation of antichrists. I, I would like to jump in on Lamech, if I may now go back to this uh, genealogical one. You know, um, I sent a, a little teaser to Braden the other day. Actually, I sent it to all three of you, but I addressed it to Braden um, because the genealogy, Jesus' genealogy in Luke contains 77 names from Adam to Jesus. That's not in accord with the genealogies given in Kings or Chronicles. And so, obviously, it is an artifice. It's not factual or consistent. It's artificial, and it has meaning. And that 77 correlates to the 77 weeks of Daniel. And again, we're looking at the prophecy of the coming of Messiah in a context which existed in Judaism during the Second Temple period. Again, it's um, kind of like a um, an affirmation of Jesus' messiahhood. Uh, it happens the same in the Book of Enoch, where they use the seventy-seven weeks to represent the same as in Daniel. Um, but then there is a really interesting way that Jesus interprets the number 77. And I'd like to look at that apropos to what you were saying about what does it mean? Why would that, were they in there? So there's this messianic concept, but what Jesus does is it turns it around. And it's almost like turning Lamech's boast about having killed, and he deserved 77 times whatever, you know, absolution. Um, Jesus turns that into, we must forgive. It has been mistranslated for centuries as 70 times seven, but in fact, it's the exact same words as are used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in the story of Lamech. So he really did say, um, we are to, to forgive 77 times. And that passage of Jesus before I knew about the mistranslation was so important to me that as I was going through my process as a younger person, trying to just shed my baggage, I literally attempted to forgive everyone who had hurt me in any way, 70 times, seven times. And in the process of doing that, about halfway through, it's like, oh my God, why have I been holding on to this? This is just nuts. I think Jesus was actually being very serious about that as a process of freeing our souls from emotional baggage.
0: It's and it amazing. is a process. What's what's kind of coming on to me right now is that G, if Jesus is saying forgive them seventy-seven times, in in like Jesus knows the is Jesus is very aware of seven being a number meaning completion so to me it sounds like if Jesus is going to talk about forgiveness and the number seven and 77 so two complete circles so maybe there's this this concept of like hey forgive them completely and then when you think you've forgiven them completely do it again do it again just to make sure and then do it again just to make sure.
1: So, I just wanted to add in a little bit of context here. Lamech is a son of Cain, and he says, if in Genesis 4 24, if Cain was avenged sevenfold, then truly I will be avenged 77fold if anybody attacks or hurts me. And it's the ultimate eye for an eye, an unending punishment. And Jesus turns that upside down and says, unending forgiveness. And this is where one of the key points from Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, that causes so much anger and hatred. God can't be a God that throws people into hell if Jesus is the face of God and he says, we must forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Yep, And that, that ties in what Liz
3: was saying earlier um, about, you know, the condemnation of others that happens all the time when in fact our job is to love. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It's hard when you are um, with people that you think might be good friends, maybe just because they're nice to you. I know living in... The Siouxland area, I felt like an outsider. I didn't feel like I fit in. And you know what? Oh, I'm proud to be an outsider. (laughs) I really am. Because there's some circles I really don't want to be a part of because it's exhausting. With the negativity Mm. or not loving other people. And if you're not careful, you will turn into that person. And so you get really protective of who you are letting in your circles.
1: Oh, that's a powerful powerful message Liz and I'm trying to remember where I read that I read it yesterday or this morning unfortunately I read so many things I can't remember where they come from but (laughs) that that is a powerful truth if you surround yourself with the people you want to become is an easy way of saying it yeah it's not it's not completely true right but the, the opposite is true. If we surround ourselves with pieces of human vial, uh, there's a really good chance we're going to fall into that mess.
2: Right. And when we love people, it, it shows on the outside. Like people notice a difference and they are drawn to you. They are attracted to you. We have people, there's some family members around and we have some friends that... <laughs> They never would have walked into the church doors to talk to us. We met them where they're at. We invite them to our home and they're constantly in contact. Can we come over? Can we, can we talk to you? Can we, and it's, the church isn't always the community. Sometimes it's over Zoom. Sometimes it's in your house. There's always an opportunity to love people.
3: Sometimes, sometimes it's in line at the grocery store.
2: Yes, it is.
3: And that's sometimes the most fun and the most effective um, witnessing, if you will.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah so John took us into the Gospel of Luke and that genealogy. and again, a challenge for those who say the Bible must be literal and inerrant is the genealogy in Matthews, how Matthew begins his his story of Jesus. And it's different because Matthew has a different reason for the way he crafts his genealogy. Luke had the reason that John talked about uh, Messiah. Actually, they both have the same ultimate reason. They just get there in a different way. Luke uses the the reference to Messiah from a number perspective, uh, the number 77. And... And, uh, and Matthew uses the number 14 to do the same thing. And John, would you describe how the Jewish people used numbers within the, the, the names and the words they create? The study is called gematria,
3: which is the Hebrew version of the Greek word geometry, which is uh, geometria. And... In both Greek and Hebrew, each letter represented a different number. So, for example, the number that we translate in English as 666 doesn't actually exist in either Greek or Hebrew in the same digits. They are written with three different digits. It's 600 plus 60 plus 6 Mm -hmm. but they therefore have meaning. Um, And one of my favorite words is um, the Hebrew word for wisdom. It's numerical value of the letters used is 73. So there are a lot of, let us say, um, it's like punning. There are multiple meanings and connections between words depending on the values of the letters of the word. So there are a class of words that just are all equal to 73. And the scholars just looked back, the sages just looked back to see what connections linked all those words. It depends on the idea in Judaism that the Hebrew language is God-spoken, and so that it is energetic. When we use a Hebrew word, it actually transmits energy into the universe and it transforms the universe. So that kind of gives a foundation,
1: Eric. Okay, so the, the number 14 then is the number of David. If we were to take the numerical value of David, then for example, uh, A is number one in, in English. B is number two. If we're to do that in Hebrew, David is the number 14. So we get to the end of Matthew's genealogy, and he writes, so all of the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. David, the ultimate king. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, another 14 generations. From King David to King Jeroboam, I believe it is. And then from the deportation to Messiah, 14 generations, Messiah, King, Jesus, King, the new David, the son of David. The the gospel begins not with a boring list of names we can't pronounce. It begins with a phenomenal declaration. This is who Jesus is. And now the rest of this gospel is going to show us how and why. And then Matthew also gives us women that uh, that you would say couldn't possibly be part of a genealogy. Amar, who was raped, and uh, and the prostitute uh, Rahab. Rahab, thank you. Uh, in this line of line of people that were broken, messed up. Just as much as, as any of us are. And non-Israelites. And Non-Israelites. And, Very important. And non-Israelites. Yes. Thank you. So we have this incredible reminder in this genealogy that God makes beautiful things. There might even be a song about that.
0: Oh, I might have heard one or two. Out of, out of the dust,
1: out of us, right? Out of the mess, God makes beautiful things. all righty so all right Elizabeth brayden are now we're off starting to, to sing off to sorry
2: beautiful things you make beautiful
1: things out of the dust there you yeah. go <laughs> uh okay so a little bit more we were talking about the generations from uh the 10 generations i'm going to talk a little bit more about that there are 10 generations from shem to abraham as there are 10 generations from adam to noah uh, in another formal symmetry the 10 pre-flood generations end with a father who begets three sons just as this series of 10 will end with Terah after begetting Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram becomes Abraham. This genealogy, which constitutes the bridge from the flood to the beginning of the patriarchal tales, uses formulas identical with those of the pre-flood genealogy in chapter 5, omitting the summarizing indication of lifespan and the reported uh, death of each begetter. Longevity is now cut in half and then halved again in the later part of the list as we approach Abraham. From this point, men will have merely extraordinary lifespans of the modern Caucasian mountain dweller and not the legendary lifespans. The narrative in this way is preparing to enter recognizable human time and family life. There is one hidden number game here, as the Israeli Bible scholar Moshe Weinfeld has observed. The number of years, and John, you're going to love this. From the birth of Shem's son to Abraham's migration to Canaan is an exact solar year, 365. Can I jump in right now? I knew you'd want to. Do okay. it. Thanks for the intro. Okay, everybody
3: listening, get out your paper and pencil. I've
2: got my listening ears on, so Man I tell my kids. You
3: take <laughs> the first 10 generations, Adam, to the flood. If you offset the first five and the last five such that the age at the birth of the father with the age at the death of the sixth father in that, you come up four out of 10 times with one number, 1092. This is um, tying into something that Eric was reading out of Altar earlier, that preserves a Babylonian astronomical equation. And it comes down to 37 months, lunar months, is equal to 1,092 days. It's repeated four times in that first genealogy. And we know that in fact, this is intentional because the symmetry is there. I actually did an experiment with some friends. I I I, um, just randomly chose 10 people, and I counted myself as one. And I said, "Okay, I want you to pick a number between this and this, and then another number between this and this." That's all. I gave them the ranges that correlated to the ranges that we find in the Bible. And do you know, with my random, and I did this twice, with my random data collections. I could come up with pi. I could come up with the years. I could come up with um, solar months. I could come up with the um, golden mean, etc. One thing did not occur with my experimental lists that occurs in the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. That is the structure. It is very structured. Now, we know that the data of those birth years in those first first 10 generations have to do with calendars, because what happened is when the translators of the Septuagint were trying to make heads or tails of the fact that Egyptian king lists did not show any floods. There was a continuous king list for thousands of years that didn't exist. They actually fabricated what we would perhaps call false data. Now, I'm not a fan of the word false because they do the exact same thing that modern translators do. They try to reconcile their history with what the Bible says. And there's another version of the Old Testament called the Samaritan Pentateuch, which did the exact same thing. So we have essentially three different traditions of what the numbers in the ages of the patriarchs means in the first 10 generations. We know that there are other numbers that are encoded into these kinds of generations. So, for example, the ages of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you follow the rabbis, equals 500. Now, 500 is the number of units between each one of the heavens. And then once you get up to the seventh heaven, it's the number of units of the cherubim, and then above the cherubim, it's the number of units of the different parts of the chariot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that is how the rabbis actually interpreted those numbers. And we, of course, in Christianity don't know this. And there's a whole lot of other stuff that's in there um, that we have yet to discover. So
1: I love the fact that because go ahead. Oh, I was just carrying on with that because we don't talk to the Hebrew scholars. We didn't begin talking Christians, uh, the collective we, we didn't begin talking to Hebrew scholars until the 20th century. The Christian scholars completely separated themselves from Jewish thinkers shortly after the first century and then tried to interpret everything they were finding in the Bible without having any Hebrew context. So as brilliant of a man, as, uh, as brilliant of thinkers as any of the first Christian patriarchs were, they were still trying to hear God and, and understand what's going on in the Hebrew Bible with no, none of the context that we're sharing today. So, um, so you get tremendous differences from, I think, what God is trying to do and how the early Christians actually behaved uh, in the confessions. You know, one of the most famous books ever written, um, uh, we are told, we start getting the story of substitutionary atonement. That Jesus had to die as a sacrificial lamb because that's what was seen so often in the in the Hebrew Bible, God required sacrifice. Yeah, it's a very different, very different way to to look at that. God didn't require sacrifices. God knew that we needed sacrifices. We had to sacrifice something, or we couldn't believe that God would forgive us. Now, look, read the Bible, read the Hebrew Bible from that perspective. That God gives the gift of sacrifice, so that we can know that we've been forgiven. What does Jesus do? He gives us His body and bread. He gives us His body as bread and His and His blood as wine, so that we will know that we've been forgiven. The whole story, the entire biblical story, is God forgives. Seven times seventy-seven.
3: You Amen. know, um, apropos to the Jewish interpretation of what happened to Jesus. Number one, the idea of sacrificing a human being is anathema to Judaism. It is an abomination. Um, everything about the story, so when it got reinterpreted as you know, salvific by Christianity, it it created a massive rift. It's a huge rift.
2: I know we're not, I know we, it's not always healthy to go back and go, I wonder what. But I wonder, and and now we're into this new age of, hey, it's okay to ask questions. What would it, what would the world have been like if they listened to Jesus when he came? Like what would the world have been like?
3: Well, what will it be like now if we listen to
0: Jesus? Yeah. 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 Like and- there's an
2: opportunity every day. Like we're not dead. <laughs> we're not dead. Not yet. Still breathing
0: there's like that's that's the wisdom though I think that we're we're kind of trying to point to is that um the world's
2: not damned we can still do something about it your turn (laughs) (laughs)
0: um that even right after Jesus was alive and walked the earth we we as humanity still thought Ah, uh, now I totally understand it. Now I totally get it. I don't need to listen to the sage wisdom from my ancestors from generations before me. I don't, I don't No, We'll, we'll leave the Hebrew Bible in the, in the dust.
2: I got this.
0: And then what happens? We have another thousand years of, nope, we missed the point.
3: Well, and we, we touched on this last week is when people think that attitude that Liz just described and what you were describing, um, the word becomes dead. It's no longer alive. It's not speaking.
1: So I want to offer, i will close with something other than the genealogy and what The authors were doing and one of my favorite just one of my favorite examples of. you just talked about not paying attention to the wisdom of the forefathers. Not knowing the context of the story. Uh, So i'll tell a little story to describe how not knowing the context of the story is is such a problem when I was in seminary we had a, a literature professor come visit us from Harvard. And he was talking about the fact that there are so few people today that have any kind of background in the Bible that when they teach literature at Harvard, they have to give a Bible introduction class before they can actually teach world English literature. Because English literature is so steeped in references to the Bible, you can't understand it unless you understand what's going on in the Bible. the same same thing is true if we want to read the prophets if we want to read the prophets do we want to read Jesus I know people that don't like to read the old testament because they say I only read the new testament You you can't
2: understand
1: it there's no way to understand the new testament if you don't know the old testament and what Jesus is talking about and alluding to and I stepped all over you Liz what were you going to say (laughs)
0: <laughs>
2: no, I was going to say, oh, the red writing, it's always the red writing, you just read the red writing.
1: Okay. Yeah, and you know, and that's, I know, that's where John began, right? Yeah. When, when John, when you were trying to first understand what it meant to be Christian, you would only read the red text.
3: And I'll tell you what, I didn't read Paul, I didn't read one word of Paul, mm-hmm. for at least 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, it benefited me, but I missed out on a lot of really beautiful teaching. I really, really missed out.
1: And if we don't spend time in the Hebrew Bible, we miss out on a tremendous amount of beautiful teaching. And I want to show how the author of Jeremiah, perhaps a man named Jeremiah, we don't know, could be, uh, how this author used his intimate knowledge of the Hebrew Bible to craft his story and to share his message. And we begin with Genesis 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. Welter and waste is how Robert Alter translates that. With the earth was welter and waste because he wants to Help us hear the poetry of the Hebrew. "Welter and ways" literally means formless and void, but there's there's no beauty to that. But "tohu," "tohu" and "vabahu" offer some poetic beauty. So when the earth was "tohu" and "vabahu," uh, is what the Hebrew says. This. These two words, tovu, vabahu, occur only here in Genesis and in two later biblical texts that are clearly alluding to this one. The second word of the pair looks like a nonsense term coined to rhyme with the first and reinforce it. An effect, I have tried to approximate in English by alliteration, welter and waste. Tohu by itself means emptiness or futility and in some contexts is associated with trackless vacancy of the desert. So, trackless vacancy of the desert, keep that in mind. So, uh, chapter 4 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a prophecy, a vision from God, and he's trying to convince the people that because they have turned their back on God and they're worshiping idols, there is nothing but evil in the land, and the first 22 verses of Jeremiah are descriptions of why there is so much evil in the land. Because people have turned their back on God and they do evil things. So 23 begins, I saw the earth and look, welter and waste. This, uh, okay, uh, that's, the, that's the commentary. I want to give you the, the actual scripture. I looked on the earth, and look, it was waste and void. And to the heavens, they had no light. Actually, I think I've got Alters. No, I don't. I think I closed Alters' version. I've got the hard copy. Let me grab it. Just give me the reference. Um, Well, I've, I've got it right in front of me. I was going to read Robert Alters' version, but I don't have that in front of me. So this is the newer bystander version. Uh, I looked on the earth and lo, it was waste and void and to the heavens and they had no light. So what Alter did is he said, I looked on the earth and it was welter and waste and to the heavens and they had no light. And I looked at the mountains and lo, they were quaking and the hills moved to and fro. And I looked and lo, there was no one at all. All of the birds of the air had fled. I looked and lo, the fruitful land was a desert and all the cities laid in ruins before the Lord in his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. Uh, so what Walter what says is, I saw the earth and look, welter and waste. This powerful prophecy is one of the most striking instances which in hyperbole, uh, the, which the hyperbole of prophetic poetry pushes it towards ap- uh, apocalyptic vision almost despite itself. What Jeremiah is imagining in this devastation of the land by foreign invaders, uh, but by invoking the language of creation from Genesis 1, he conjures up a vision reversing the very act of creation. If the world was once created out of welter and waste, when primordial darkness reigned over all, the process is being turned backwards by the way that people are behaving. That speaks so powerfully to me because we see it happening right before our very eyes. And the prophets of the world are shouting, we are killing ourselves, we're destroying our planet. Look, Welter and Waste, we're reversing the order of creation because of our self-centeredness. A way that the biblical authors used their words, used their poetry, used their literary style to... To shock us into listening, uh, Jeremiah wrote in the year 700 BC as the Assyrian armies were coming. 2,700 years later, Jeremiah is still saying, look, I see the earth and its well and waste. And that is I guess that's enough of me preaching. So John, any any additional thoughts on what Robert Alter talks to us about in, in that section? That is to me, one of the most important commentaries that
3: I have ever, ever heard. And it is, um, a thanks to you Eric for introducing me to Robert Alter. So I love it. You did a good
1: job. Appreciate it. You are welcome. So Brandon and Liz, uh, any, any way that you would like to sum up what you've heard today, what's new to you, or, or is it new to you? What, uh, what, what it means for the way you see the Bible or how the Bible impacts you? Um, working with children
2: and youth. Um, I like to make, I always want to get it right with them. And I think as volunteers that are working with children and youth, it's really easy to conform to what the world's idea is of God. Um, and so I, I try every day as hard as I can, even with my own children to, know that there's lots of good in the world and that we can still make a difference. And that these scriptures, they have been interpreted for so long ago. And so it's okay to ask questions. And so I tell people, I know for a long time you've been told, this is how it is. People get in trouble for asking, ask questions. And if you don't feel comfortable asking somebody questions, you ask us the questions and we will provide whatever, whatever you need. Ask questions. It's confusing. It's so much confusing on how to live your life and so many people over your entire life and generations and generations have all been saying, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. This is how you do it.
1: And sometimes we just have to, uh, like you said, trust that our questioning faith is healthy. Yes. And, and that as the more time we spend in the bible the more time we spend we see people arguing with each other differing perspectives differing voices challenging what came before and we're continuing in that tradition with what we're doing on this podcast and exactly you find the other
3: thing that liz talked about which is people succumbing to peer pressure and following the status quo and so for example there was recently a major um Convention, as it were, of Daniel scholars presenting papers on what the book of Daniel was about. And 99.9% of the time, you go to a church and you hear Daniel preached, it's about the end times, it's about this, it's about this, it's about this. And do you know that these are theologians worldwide? 100% of them said it has nothing to do with the end times. So a friend of mine asked me what I thought about the book of Daniel. I said, you know, I'm not really a, a you know, very versed about Daniel uh, exegesis, let's look at the theological dictionary. Major theologians worldwide provide the data in the theological dictionary and they say conclusively, it has nothing to do with the end times. And because of the peer pressure, after my friend gave his sermon, I, I called him up and say, hey, how'd your sermon go? Oh yeah, it went great. People loved it, and I said, "Okay, well, how did you preach it?" He said, "Oh, I preached it was all about the end times." It's like, okay, you know, and that's not a criticism, right? That is not a criticism. It's very easy to want to belong, want to conform. I think that's just a human quality, but challenge, you know, challenging the status quo takes a lot it takes a lot of courage it takes a lot of fearlessness
2: every day what are we doing <laughs> like
3: what? well yeah and you know people <laughs> will look at you and you know it's like all of a sudden they start treating you differently it's yes like, whatever
2: yes, <laughs> yes. It's, it's like just real quick my my I had a phone call with my dad yesterday hour and a half and He's, you know, we we're talking about we're fully vaccinated now. And well, if somebody got COVID, they don't need to be vaccinated, aren't they double vaccinated? I have all these questions, and no one will answer them. Well, who did you call? Well, nobody. Why don't you start with your primary care provider? I think you're just there's this unknown and fear, and you don't know. You see these questions answered, and then you can move on, and you don't have to give this any more energy. If we could just work through what's going on in our life and have people that we trust that will work through it with us, and we could all be better people.
1: Yeah, that's beautifully said. Thanks, Liz.
2: Thanks.
1: All right, Brayden. any final thoughts?
0: Um,
2: I'm a little distracted.
0: (laughs) I think final thoughts on, on what does what does a generational perspective do to us when we look through scripture? Um, Recognizing that the folks who came before us have gotten a lot of things right for a long time because they're people, they were made in the image of God. So those people are going to do good things because they are God's children. Um, But they're also still people. And so generations before us, may have done some pretty awful things we've done we as humanity have done really wonderful and really awful things and every single day every single moment every single second every single microsecond is an opportunity for us to to turn the corner to quit doing the terrible things to quit telling ourselves the terrible things, to quit telling each other the terrible things, to quit spraying the terrible things out into the universe, whatever those terrible things might end up doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We can stop, we can turn around, we can run back to doing things the way that God asked us
2: calls to us. do
0: it. Mm-hmm. And love and take care of things mm-hmm. and people.
1: So I'm going to turn that into a benediction, a way to bless everybody who's listening today. May we all go live that way. May we bless the world by the way we live. Amen. And, and as, uh, as I love all of you, may all of the people who are listening go share their love with the community in the world.
3: Yeah.
1: And amen. until next time, amen. amen. Love you guys. <laughs>